This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From Atlanta, Georgia, and the center of the celebrations and events leading to the big game of Super Bowl 53. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. From the Sirius XM stage on Radio Row, here are your hosts, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and welcome to a very special edition of Wharton Moneyball. We are coming to you live from Radio Row in Atlanta, Georgia, scene of this year's Super Bowl, a very special afternoon session where we'll talk to a few folks from around the world of the NFL and soak up the atmosphere um, unlike any other really Super Bowl week teams executives sponsors it's a building full it's a fun place to be I'm Kate Massey joined this afternoon by my co-host and longtime collaborators Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow it's great to be here what do you think guys it's exciting it's the Super Bowl it's the all of Americans sports energy concentrated into one day. That's right. That's right. I'm just excited about uh, all the people with different careers. We have former players here. We have executives here. We have people that are supplying data. We have all kinds of different people with different roles, and that's mm-hmm. exciting to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've done this once before. We were in Houston two years ago for our debut on Radio Row, and we decided to come back this time around. We've got a fun show lined up. We have four fantastic guests over the next couple of hours. We're going to have them drop in, drop out. We'll talk to them. We'll talk to each other. But our first guest is with us now, and we couldn't be happier. It is Eric Winston. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Eric is the president of the NFL Players Association. He was unanimously elected to a third term in March of last year. He was a longtime player, 12 years in the NFL. He played tackle in the NFL. He was with the Texans, Chiefs, and Cardinals, and then finished up with the Bengals, I believe. That's right. He famously came out of West Texas. He, he was a tight end for Midland Lee High School out there in West Texas where they take football very seriously. They're next-door neighbors to Odessa Permian. Some of you guys right. may know them from the Friday Night Lights fame. Eric went to school at Miami. He joined the Coker regime when he first got down there, played little tight end and then switched over to tackle. So, Eric, glad to have you. How is it? How busy a week is it for the president of the NFLPA? It's pretty busy. Um, we started uh, ground running really Tuesday night, but yesterday we had a we had a busy day. We do a lot of programming with the players. One of my big initiatives is, hey, all these guys are going to be here. They're doing some autograph signings. They're doing appearances. They're going to some of the parties. Let's add some value for them. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, we've we've built up over the years uh, a lot of programming, and uh, and we've we've built on it, extended it through some of our commercial initiatives. Yesterday we had a thing called we call Pitch Day, where uh, where small companies come in and pitch their ideas of why they should be uh, given a, a, a commercial license that we own. So think EA Sports, think Fanatics, think uh, Panini Trading Cards. So our face, our likeness, our numbers. What, how would that meld with your company? And so we had some startups come, kind of Shark Tank-ish type thing, and we, we judge them and, and give a winner out, and, and they have some prizes. We give some money for some startups, but they also are, are able to get one of our licenses, uh, obviously through an equity trade. Uh, so that's been a, a, a business line that we've started up in the last two or three years that we're doing. We're trying to bring guys that are very interested in that sort of space, that venture space, that private equity space, the technology space, data, all of those things roll into there. Uh, and so we, we, we put on a big uh, big thing yesterday. And then last night we have 
multiple dinners with media or then with former player parties. Today we have, I just got out of a two, three hour meeting with uh, with our executive committee and then now we go to our press conference and stopping here and talk to you guys before that and then tonight we have a, uh, a party tonight with uh, a lot of our licensees. So again, those EAs, we have over 100 licensees that are licenses, licensees of the PA. And uh, that's how we generate revenue, and, and uh, we become self-sustaining through that. Well, tell us more about the, what the PA, what the association does for the players. And as, a, as an outsider, we know that you know every few years there's a big negotiation with the owners. Right. And but beyond that, most people don't know what the NFLPA does. So what does the what do the players get out of the association? Right. Well, in, in your simplest form, it, it's like every other union. We we bargain for the wages, hours, working conditions, and health and safety of our of our men, and that's. Uh, that doesn't stop at that big negotiation. Everybody hears about the CBA, whether it's every 10 years, 7 years, 5 years, however you do it. But there's constantly, there's grievances. There's constantly, um, we're, we're looking out for them with uh, um, player protections in the health and safety space. We're, we're activating them and doing different things. Again, we have a for-profit arm. Our Players, Inc. Uh, goes out and, and we, we build up and, and get appearances for guys. We do a lot of things outside of that traditional union space. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that, quite frankly, takes up a lot of time, but we think adds a lot of value to these guys' career. And one of our big missions is we want you to get more out of football than football is going to get out of you. So who owns the player likenesses after they finish the career? They, they revert back to the player. So these are only active players. It's an active player union. Obviously, we have a former player chapter that, uh, that we still do things for. We still, um, uh, we, we still su- support. But uh, it's an active players' union, so the, those likenesses will kind of reverse. So, if you want to uh, put together an electronic game that involves NFL players who have finished their career, you got to go to them individually and get their permission. Yeah, now don't get me wrong; we still have obviously the contacts there. We still right. are able to facilitate that, but there are some uh, protections, and we've done some group things in that space in the former player space whether it's for apparel and jerseys if you're thinking you know the the 10 best running backs of all time or again you start thinking about all-time teams and ea or trading cards we're able to uh, aggregate those guys much easier than whether the companies are or anybody else's so eric one of the things as as professors that we think about when we teach is how much heterogeneity there is in the classroom not every student is the same well i would imagine you're dealing with players where some may be in the nfl for a year some may be tom brady who's 41 years old how do you guys balance the needs of wow we want to get as much as we can for the top player but at the end of the day everybody that's in the nfl and plays should get some level of let's call it lifetime benefit how do you do that balance yeah 60 60 uh, percent over 60 percent of our guys are on minimum salaries so you know you try to do as much as you can in the, in the right thing for as many people as possible and then if something's going to, you know, you've got a guy, an outlier on one side that, hey, this rule is not going to benefit him or it could hurt him. We've got to be able to then give that person an out in a, in a way to negotiate for if you're talking about contracts, you're talking about something else. But the one thing I think we try to stress to our guys and when you're talking about that revenue split between benefits and salary is you've got a 100% chance of being a former player one day and you have a 100% chance of probably being hurt. You're not, not probably, but you do. So you got to make sure that you're covering yourself, not just now when you're 25, but when you're 45, you're 65. So there's been a, a huge emphasis on increasing benefits, making sure guys are, are, are financially solvent throughout their lifetime. And again, that football, that you get more out of football than football gets out of you. That there, There's going to be a trade-off there, and I think we all know that, and I think that's been pretty well publicized, especially in the health, health space the last 10 years. But there's a lot of things we can get out of football, and I think it's us up 
up to us at the union and, in, and as individual players to make sure that trade-off's happening. Mm -hmm. Eric, we are an analytics show. We do analytics ourselves inside of football and outside of football. It's been exciting to see the emergence of this technology as player tracking data. And we've seen the power it has in other sports. This was the first year that NFL teams had full release of these data. But we know that it goes to some of the heart of the player um, union issues. You know, the, who owns the data? The, who, who's, who, who, what, what can be done? What information can be shared? So how are you guys thinking about that right now? And what are the prospects for this thing really taking root and growing within football? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think data is, is that, that undiscovered country right now, right? Like, what, is, what does that frontier look like and what are we talking about? And I think, as you guys know probably better than anybody, it, what's happening now compared to next year is going to be like, man, we were really in the Stone Age. I mean, it, it is happening and, and exponentially multiplying that quickly uh, when you were talking about the advances that are happening in data. I, I think the first thing that comes to my mind when we start talking about data is the players have to own their own data. To me, that's theirs. It, 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 it's just like any other medical rights or anything else. So just that to is, be clear, the, just to be clear, the way data is used, as you know, one of the great things we have people talk to us all the time about this is for training. Right. And so the team puts a bunch of sensors on Eric Winston right. while he's playing, and you're saying that the team has to get the the players right to get that data because that would be a well, form I'll of data it, where I, I call Eric take Winston it, yeah, because I'll I take see it a step further. It, okay. the, the player should have access and own it completely. And if he wants to give it to the team yeah, right. to discuss, then they can. The thing is, but there's too many times right now where a team will be like, well, I guess I'll let you come in and see it, but you can't take it with you. And we're not going to do that. Now, I will say that there is a difference in data, right? If I can watch you run 60 yards, that's a step, but that is a piece of data, right? I yeah, mean, that, absolutely. I, I, I don't probably own that, right? And I can probably put a stopwatch on it so I can figure out how fast you're running. But when we start talking about sleep, we're talking about yeah. heart rates. We're talking yeah. about blood pressure. Yeah. We're talking about how, you know, perspiration rates, things of that if nature. If you went to a doctor, you would own that data. Right. And someone you would, would need exactly. the right and, to and, get and that if, data. And if the doctor went and then told somebody else, that's a HIPAA violation. So that's where I come out as there's a lot of cool and interesting and, and, and very beneficial things we can do with players, right. with data. But it has to start with this conversation of who owns it. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I'll tell you, like, it's not the teams. It's mm -hmm. the players. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me elaborate on that because I had an interesting conversation with a, a doctor whose expertise is sleep. And he knew a little bit about what the NFL had been doing with the sleep diagnostics, in particular some of the coaches. And he pointed out a very grave error that was being made. And that was assigning all the players the same protocol. And the reason why the, the, uh, the coach did that is that he was using the average. That was the right thing on average for players to be doing for preparation. The amount of the diet, the times they eat, the amount of sleep they did, the mask that they were being assigned to use to keep out, to, to make sure that they're, they're, they were peak performance at the right time. And what the doctor was telling me was that individual heterogeneity is so much larger than the individual average, and that has to be worked in. So the players have to recognize that they're going to get this tracking and, and data about their heart rates, their, their sleep, their, but they have to share it with the team. Otherwise, they're going to get bad advice and won't work for them, work on average, but for them individually. So it's like really it's, they do own it and should own it, but they have to recognize that they're not going to get the benefit out of it unless their coaches and staff also have access to it and can assign programs for them that are tailored and individualized. Yeah, but... And I agree with you in the sense of, but then those programs have to be followed, right? If the sleep pattern comes back and says, this guy shouldn't be practicing on Friday, the coach, right. the coach can't then just go say, well, he still needs to practice Friday. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my whole thing with this, this tracking data is, unfortunately, it's going and the decisions are being made by people that don't understand it. 
And you can have the data guy, you can have the statistician, you can have all those guys. But at the end of the day, that head coach who doesn't have any background in it is still making the decision for some reason. Mm. And that's where I come back to where who's really making the decisions here and why should those people be the ones that own it? And that's that's where I, I, I'm, I always base it on is that player should own it because he should be able to pick on, hey, I'm going to give it to him because I trust him and I know he's going to make the right decisions for me. Eric, what level of interest does the average player have in those data? You know, analysts are excited about it. Some people in training and strength and conditioning are excited about it, some less so. Among the players, how would you characterize their interest? I would definitely say the new age players are very interested in it. I mean, I think they understand and they get it so much more than a lot of the older players because the older players didn't come up through it, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't come up in high school and and, and all the things that colleges are doing now with it, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. We didn't have that in college, so I, I think it's a, still a little bit more foreign to them. Mm-hmm. I think they think it's cool, but then tell me what I can do with it. And I, I still don't think that anybody can really say, hey, if I get all this data, I can tell you this about it. I can 100% tell you. Like, I, I, have, I have not seen that sort of level of sophistication yet. And that's, just for the, that's because I think we haven't aggregated enough data, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So when, when those things come out and we can do some more predictive things, we can tell people more about themselves, I think players will see more value in it, and I think they'll want to use it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Eric Winston. Eric is the president of the NFL Players Association. He's in his third term there after playing for 12 years with a variety of teams, Texans, Chiefs, Cardinals, and Bengals. We are doing a live special presentation down here from Radio Row in Atlanta in advance of the Super Bowl. Cade Massey hosting for the next two hours or so with my buddies Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. Eric Winston, Eric, um, how did you get involved? How did you decide to do this union representation thing? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm a masochist, I guess. Um, <laughs> no. You know, when I, when I first went to Houston, there was a guy named Mark Bruner there who was well, a sure. longtime tight end, played in Pittsburgh, played down, and he was an executive committee member, which is pretty, it's a vice president. So he's, there's 10 vice presidents of the union, and he's one of the guys. And uh, he, he had taken me under his wing. He was a mentor of mine. He taught me how to be a professional, taught me how to work out, how to, how to prepare, how to get ready for practice. Where was this in your career? This is in Houston, my rookie year in your Houston. Your rookie year. So, okay. And one of the things, you know, when you're working out, you're having random conversations. I'd start, you know, hey, why do we do things this way? Or why is it this? You know, and eventually say, hey, you, need, you should come to a meeting. You should come and, hey, Gene will be here. You should ask those questions. Or, hey, you need to come to the, the annual meeting. Ask those questions. Those are good questions to be asked. So he kind of pulled me in knowing that I was inquisitive, knowing that I was curious about what was going on, why it was going on, and how we could make it better. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of been my thing. And, and once I got there, I saw a bunch of like-minded guys that really wanted to look out for their fellow players and wanted to leave it a little bit better than they found it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very appealing to me. That was something that it was, a, it was kind of a brotherhood within a brotherhood, so to speak. You're in the mm-hmm. NFL, but now there's like another little brotherhood of guys that are trying to look out for their other brothers. And I, th- right. I thought that was awesome. So that was, that was my entrance in it. I went to the first meeting, and I was hooked. I was like, this is awesome. I, I want to be a part of this. I want to help. Since you started in the NFL, what have been the biggest changes you've seen in the use of data? Like, if we forget. Oh, so I mean, it's like. We it, only have a two-hour yeah, show. Maybe yeah. you could talk the I entire mean, time. Well, you just think of, like, the health and safety sensors, right? And you think of um, just well, tell, tell us about that. A lot of folks don't know what right. the health, health and safety sensors listen, are. Listen, I, I, my rookie year, ESPN was still playing You Got Jacked Up. Right. Remember the top 10, I like do. the hardest hits. And I of course, do. they were always blindside shots right to the cheek. I had a, I had a, t- <laughs> I had a teammate that won it two, two weeks in a row. And I don't think that's something you really want to win two weeks in a row. And now we have this thing where that, those, are, those, are, those are fouls. That you can't do that. You're taught not to do that. That you're coached not to do that. So that's how far we've come in really a limited amount of time. Uh, and then on top of that, the, 
the, whether it's the sensors, the data the collection, and just the overall protocols that guys now are coming up with. Because the NFL's put it in, now it's in college, and because the college put it in, now it's in high school. Guys have a better understanding about what it means, what concussions mean, but what, also what their other health and safety and, and how their eating affects their playing and their overall uh, health viability. It, it's, it's totally different. The guy, the rookies coming in now have so much more knowledge and are so much more equipped to have a longer career and a longer lifespan than we were. It's pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. You played for 12 years. How, how, what kind of injury pattern did you have, and how do you think you well, lasted that long? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, all the, it's, it's always a little bit of luck, right? You, I didn't, you know, that pile, it was piling up. I got out of there without, you know, getting rolled up too bad. I had, I think I had six, seven surgeries, um, mostly scopes. I had a really okay. bad knee injury in college. Okay. Um, so, again, you know, I call that lucky. <laughs> That's sort of mm -hmm. where we're coming at when we really talk about some of these things over 12 years and mm -hmm. both ankles, shoulders, elbows, that sort of things. But we're just talking about the quote-unquote cleanups, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so these so weren't actual injuries. They were more just damage accrued over. Yeah, damage accrued yet over. Yeah, of mm -hmm. course. So it's something that, you know, I never missed a game because of an injury, which is I'm, I'm really proud of. Amazing. But I'm amazing. also lucky. Of. I, I tried to look at things a little differently. Uh, stretching and, and yoga were always a big priority of mine. Mm -hmm. When I hurt my knee really bad in uh, college, that was part of the program. Mm -hmm. When I got deeper into rehab was yoga and like, man, my back feels great after this, and wow. I feel pretty good. So I, I kept it in there, and I think that was a big part. I think uh, trying to learn more about health and eating right, I think that helps. But, again, some of it's luck. I think I was in a good system for it, the zone system, all of that. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't say there was one silver bullet, but making sure you're sleeping right, making sure you're stretching, making sure you're doing right, at least you give yourself a better probability, a better chance of staying healthy. All right. There's a, the, the intellectual version of that is to go to grad school. And something we haven't <laughs> mentioned yet is that you are in the Wharton Executive MBA program, which is just like our MBA program, yeah. just that you go every other weekend for two years. So yeah. you're working full time, but you drop into Philadelphia every other weekend yeah. and study. 5.30 flight tomorrow morning. Is that right? Yeah. My gosh. Even Super Bowl weekend. That's can't, right. Can't miss class. That's right. Can we reschedule this? <laughs> So what, in the short time you've been there, you know, six, six months or so, or nine months maybe, yeah. um, it, how has it changed the way you're thinking about your job? Oh, man, it's been great. That, that's been the one fun thing about this is that, you know, you get something, you get a piece of knowledge, and then you can immediately deploy it, right? You can immediately, whether it's, hey, I'm looking over the financials of the union, like, I, I understand reading those at such a deeper level and understanding what right. I'm looking at and how to read them and go about it. And, and just the way it's, you know, it's like Neo finally looking at the matrix. You're like, Oh, okay. I, I see it now. That sort of thing. And then it, again, it, you're a lot of the guys there and myself, we're all at different levels of hard skills, right? I mean, some guys come from an accounting background. Some guys come from an econ background, whatever you come with, you probably bring in some sort of skills and mine might be, a bigger learning curve than others since I haven't been in that traditional some sort of business role in the last 12, 13 years. So for me, it's, it's been great. But I think the way they want you to think, the way they're teaching you to approach problems, to understand problems, understand and come up with solutions is the real value there. I mean, a lot of guys can do equations, a lot of people, but how do you think about a problem, approach a problem and solve it? 
that's something that I think has been really valuable and really special uh, about the program so far, and, and it gets me excited about going every weekend because of that. That's, that's great to hear. So I, I thought I, w- I was going to ask you how you're going to watch the Super Bowl and what's that, what's that going to be like for you, but you're going to be studying, apparently. You're not going to no, be I'm running. flying back. You're flying back here on Sunday? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, it's late Saturday night. I'm coming back after uh, 48 hours of, of class. Wow. Uh, so I'm going to come back and, and do my regular thing and, um, yeah, it'll be fun. It's like, again, it, it, this is a long work week, but it's a great culmination of watching, uh, you know, I got a really good friend playing in the game. I was going to say, are you allowed to have preferences? I, I'm, I'm not, but <laughs> but you end if, up. if the Rams win, it won't be that, you know. <laughs> but I, listen, I, I played with a guy for a long time, Andrew Whitworth, who's a yeah. good buddy of mine. And, uh, you know, I just seeing him being able to have this kind of success and, and finally being able to win some playoff games and, and being able to play, he deserves he deserves a game like this. And, you know, both teams, when you're in a job like this, you get to know so many guys and you kind of root for them all. But I'll, I'll be rooting, maybe not for the team, but him yep. specifically. Yep. Yep. I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here as a former lineman, but, I mean, isn't the game going to be won by the offensive line of one team or the other? Look, whoever can run the football, whoever can protect the quarterback – that's who's going to win the game the best. I mean, has the greatest chance of winning the game, right? right? I mean, I'm not just saying this because you're standing, but being, Listen, isn't that it? It's funny when you, you start talking about uh, franchise building and how you build a team and all of this. And, and I always say the, the formula is pretty simple. Find the quarterback, protect the quarterback, go get the other quarterback. Like every good team is built that way. There's very few teams that end up getting good without that sort of formula. So uh, the Rams definitely have it. Uh, you got to give your hat. You got to tip your hat to the, with the Patriots. They don't have a lot of big names up front, but they're playing awfully well. As I said, finding, zero sacks given up against the number one sack team and in the they're NFL. Also finding ways to disrupt the quarterback too. That's another stat that's really hard to to quantify. Is hey, I'm making the guy throw on time, or I'm making him throw off the spot. It, you can't quantify that stuff, but it matters. It matters to the DBs, and it matters to the Yeah, we just talked about it on our show yesterday. We talked about a lot of people who want to measure just sacks. What about hurries? What about hits? What about making him move his feet in the pocket? So overall there's lots disruptions. of overall disruption is a great term. Eric, if you were a tackle on the New England Patriots line this week and you're about to face that defensive line, like what would you be thinking about yeah. and doing this week facing those guys? I would tell my guards, don't get hurt because I don't want to go down there and play. <laughs> uh, you know, Aaron Donald and, and Sue and, and Fowl, those guys are special players. I mean, they really are, especially the, the, the kind of success Aaron Donald is having um, is, is, is incredible when you think about the fact that it's very easy to just move the guard, or move the center over to double team him, and he's still getting in there constantly. He's still finding ways to disrupt. You got to tip your hat to Wade Phillips and, and Bill Johnson up front. Um, of, of moving him around and creating those matchups where he can win one-on-one and he can get more one-on-ones. But that's going to be the game, right? Can, can he disrupt Brady from the middle of the pocket? Uh, can you protect? Can you run the ball and keep uh, New England's defense kind of on their heels? And if you can do that, it's a way to win. That's a way to beat them. All right. Well, listen, it's be fun to watch. Um, Eric, we very much appreciate your taking time out of what I'm sure is a busy schedule down here. I know you're rushing in here and rushing out, but it was great to talk to you. Wish you the best with your work. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You bet. That was Eric Winston, president of the NFL Players Association, longtime tackle in the NFL, and an executive MBA at, at, at Wharton, University of Pennsylvania. That has been the first quarter of this special edition of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to a special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. Live from Atlanta in the Sirius XM stage at the Super Bowl 53 Media Center. Here again, Kate Massey, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome back. 
Welcome back to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball. Live from Radio Row in Atlanta in advance of the Super Bowl down here. Lots of folks getting ready to watch Patriots-Rams. We're going to do two hours of conversation about Patriots and Rams and all things NFL. Just off of a conversation with Eric Winston, NFLPA president, rolling into a conversation with Damani Leach. Damani, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Glad to have you, man. Damani yeah. is senior vice president of football strategy and business development at the National Football League. He was at the NCAA for about 17 years before that. Before that, he played a little defensive back for Princeton. Right. And originally out of Tacoma, Washington. T-Town. Damani, you got, you got lots of little credentials on your tag. Can you go anywhere around here? Like, I, what kind I, of rooms? I think I can go just about anywhere. Can, but, you know. What can't you get into? You think all access means all access. It actually doesn't. There's different layers of all access. <laughs> it's all access with a star and with a little logo. And so... I just keep walking until somebody tells me I can't go. Somewhere. That's right. That's the way these Super Bowl parties are too, right? You, you get you get invited you get invited to some party and you think you're special, then you realize there's a special circle yep. inside the party. Yep. You got to have yep. another permit. There's to always another one. level. Listen, Damani, can you tell us a little bit about what's in your portfolio right now? You've been doing this yeah. job for about four years. About four years, yeah. It's um it's a fairly new role within um uh, the league office. So I work in our football operations group. What we do is we focus on the game of football. That's how we play it, coach it, officiate it, who does it, where we do it, how we do it, and just how do we make it better okay. is the bottom line goal is make the game of football better, particularly with a future focus. So look three, five, in some cases, ten years out. All right. Well, I'm glad you're thinking about that because I'm sure nobody else is thinking about it. <laughs> no one has any opinions on how to make the NFL better. Not right? at all. Especially not Eric, who's dying to get in. Already, right I'm right already in. asking Here a question, Here we go. So what does, I mean, better can mean, as a marketing professor, better can yep. mean lots of things. Yep. Better from the customer experience, better from the player experience, better from the owner, better in-game, better on television or right. through media or right. all of the above. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like a little Venn diagram with those groups. There's a lot that overlaps. There's some things that don't. Um, we think that if we can make the game better from a football perspective, from a very football-centric perspective, the other groups are all going to appreciate that. Fans, owners, players, um, they have more of their interests aligned than don't align. Um, so we're really focused on the game that's being played on the field and how to make that better. One of the things that interests me uh, is tracking football is why America is particularly fascinated with NFL as opposed to the other sports. It is clearly you know, emerged as the number one sport. And the reason I often give is that it's only 16 games. Mm-hmm. We can easily yep. concentrate an enormous amount of our energy. Damani, you uh, should know that he's a baseball guy. Yes. So he's a little bit, he's a little bit envious. Okay. He's a little envious. Okay. But, you know, baseball is 162 games. It and it's, 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 a, it's a slow walk. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, we, we have its advantages. But what in particular about um, the NFL football is so important to Americans? Yeah. I personal opinion because sure. I because I, I like this question I, quite honestly and that's I think it's the question we have to ask ourselves when we go into policy mode in the off season about what to change and not change about the game you have to start with what is it about the game that makes it special and important and part of that is I think is the cadence the schedule cadence and how often they play letting things breathe the drama having conversations for two hours about right, um, right. this this game that we're going to have but then also it's the the game itself um the movement, I think it's sort of the, the acquisition of property as you move your way down the field. It's very militaristic. It's war. I think people, <laughs> I think people like that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot about the game that's complicated. Having two kids, you can break it down to its simplest form, which is just sort of acquisition of territory, back and forth mm. to score points mm. and goals. Mm. You do that over and over and over until the clock runs out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is something that's 
interesting to people. I think they find it understandable, digestible, but it also just resonates with them. Mm-hmm. Damani, you know, I know you've been doing interviews this week, so I know you've had this question a lot, but we've got to ask you. Go for it. What, what are you thinking on officiating? What's going to happen with officiating? And how much, how much of a bump does that issue get because of what happened in New Orleans? Uh, well, I guess what I'll say is this. We are always focused on officiating. Mm-hmm. It's not something that, that we just started talking about or just started trying to improve. We've been doing it really almost for a a hundred years now since we've had a league is how we make the game better and part of that is is officiating better um so my role my group's role is to work with these different units so officiating is is one of them and talk about how we can use data how we can use technology other policies and procedures that are going to make their work easier make it better Mm -hmm. um that's our task is to bring those different innovations to them Mm -hmm. Could you talk about how data and technology can actually help officials? Not necessarily during the game, although yeah. you could imagine you, can. you could Absolutely. imagine something Absolutely. in the game. And maybe during you could talk game. to us about thoughts of that. But yeah. even after the game, like how do ref- how are referees scored? Absolutely. How would they? You know, yeah. we're since we're both. I'm an NFL guy, but I'm also a baseball guy. Umpires and baseball. Umpires and baseball yeah. get graded. You can see did they call a ball when it was right. really a strike, and vice versa. How is that done in the NFL? It's it's very similar. So the. It, NFL, baseball, uh, NBA, I think that evaluation process is very similar. Post-game, there are evaluations, there are numeric scores that are given. Um, our, our graders do it on a play-by-play basis, so think about that. There's seven officials on the field, every play, 155 plays a game. Everybody is being graded in terms of how they performed on that play. And then you start to aggregate that information, not just for an individual, but for a crew, for all 126 officials, and then it's just math. Then you start doing, asking yourself questions about how are we calling certain plays uh, by play type, by location on the field. Um, are they calling things differently indoors versus outdoors, early season versus late season? And now with the player tracking data, we also have chips in the balls. We have chips on our officials. So now we can start to look at movement and location, their mechanics, and just provide them Really, it should be supplementary information to what they're already doing as part of the grading and evaluation. Process. You know, we should have someone from the league on the show sometime. We would love to hear about. I mean, referee and looks from a very from a very supportive, you know, yeah. learning and development perspective. That would be fascinating. Well, yeah. you could imagine a situation, uh, Damani, where the referee missed the call, whatever that means, yep. because he or she was on the wrong angle. Right? They weren't actually. It was the. It wasn't that they made a mistake. Just that given where they were standing. Yep. They got the wrong call. Right. So that's, I mean, in some sense, there are, there's, it's a different kind of mistake. Right. How about right. that way? And so what we're trying to do is, right now, a lot of that, and historically, has been done using two-dimensional video, just like players, looking at game film. And so now we're trying to take the data and say, okay, let's take a similar play, a run to the, to the right sideline. Where are the officials Fantastic. in that right. play? Are they all in the same location? Are there outliers? What's happening with those outliers? And using that to, to help our officials. Do you, do you expect that there, there will be more instant replay? More instant replay? In terms have? of like reviews? reviews. Actual more reviews? Yeah, I more, don't, I will, don't they, ex- will they change the rules, for example? I, I don't expect there will be more reviews. I think what we'll do is what we've continued to do, which is try to improve the replay review process. Yeah. So that's both on the field as well as the decisions Al and his crew make in New York and provide them with tools to make decisions, more importantly, faster. I think right. that's our big focus. Right. And, right. and how, how do you guys think about the resources you put on a game at, in the postseason versus in the regular season? I don't know how you're, in what way you're constrained. So you come down to the conference championships, for example, there are only two games versus the yeah. 16 on a normal weekend. Do you have more resources dedicated? I don't even, I mean, how do you all think about that? There are, so, so our, our office, the AMGC, basically, you've got a bunch of officials that are 
Um, Al and his staff are in the room looking at all of the games. So Sunday, 1 o'clock, you could have 8, 9, 10 games right, going right. on at a time. So you're spread across um, a lot so more. So you start to get spread pretty thin versus a traditional Sunday night, Monday night game. You can all be laser-focused on one okay. game. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that to say that those Sunday games lack for any sort of oversight or anything like that. So what about the other, the big other controversy that, you know, we'll get over the referee thing, I'm sure. The NFL, <laughs> if anything, has proven to be robust to almost anything. Where, where, do you, where are you guys now on the health issues that we were just at the NFLPA on here, and one of their big concerns, obviously, is health. You know, concussions and improving the health around that is always going to be a big yeah. deal. Is that part of the con- – how are you all thinking about that? Ab- absolutely. And, and we can use data and technology to help us solve that, not just from – an equipment standpoint, which we've invested millions of dollars in trying to make not only helmets better, but we're now focused on shoulder pads and cleats and spending a lot of time on that. But also, again, with the player tracking data, where players are on the field uh, at certain times when different incidents happen. We've got researchers looking at video to say, what are the angles and body positions people are at? Where are people getting hit on what kind of play type to start to distill down what is actually the significant variable that we need to try to correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Damani, one of the things that we do as researchers and statisticians is we think about running experiments. Now, I don't yeah. mean the experiments like, well, let's just play around with this player's health or safety. What are the kinds of things that you're thinking, boy, let's try this out? Is there something you can tell us that the league is thinking, you know what, it's at least worth trying. We don't yeah. know if it's going to work, right. but we're going to experiment with yeah. it. Or if, you, if it, you can't tell us about something in the future, maybe something that's been done the last couple of years where you had an idea, you tried it out, it was successful. Can you give us some idea? I about think, it? I think I'll the, call it a your, culture of experimentation. Yeah, I think to your latter point, it's the kickoff. So we, we've had data over time that has shown on a, on a per rata basis um, injuries, particularly concussions, have been most severe on kickoffs. And so we started with that data point and we said, okay, what can we look at to try to change? And some of that was equipment. Some of that was alignment. Um, and then just really looked at data and tried to make changes, but we didn't know. So really the 2018 season was one long experiment in what happens when you change certain things around the kickoff. So what are the variables that you were experimenting with? I know that there were some changes that were actually implemented, but what do you actually... Yeah. What can you so, play with? So the, the way that people line up prior to the kick, you can't run up before the kick. Now That's you have a to, yep. start. Yeah. You have to start. Even number of people? Even number of people on both sides of the ball. Where the, the return team, where they can line up, how many have to be in a certain box, what they can do right off the kick. They used to do jump blocks and attack guys right away. I they actually like that. It, that guys can just signal fair catch without actually yeah. going for the ball, yeah. which is another part of that change. No, more, no you, more wedge blocks, two-on-one blocks. You can't do that Right, anymore. but these are rules that were instituted league-wide all at once? Yes. And then you just tried, you tried different things? And we, did, we did those all at once. You did them all at once. We there don't, you go. We, we don't you have play with the one. benefit of yeah. we don't have a minor league. So we don't have the benefit of an Not environment yet. where we're able to test those things out. Um, so <laughs> we'll, we'll experiment with some things during Pro Bowl. We do that with a lot of technology at Pro Bowl. Okay. Um, a few things during preseason, but not much. People are competing for real jobs, so that's hard to do. Um, but sometimes you just have to just take a chance during the season to see how it goes. Damani, talking about experimenting with technology in the Pro Bowl, we saw the way you guys pushed out motion tracking data yeah. it was really neat what you were doing online there and some with the television production your one of your big jobs is what you said is forward looking where yeah. is football going to be three or five years from now how yeah. can we make that as good as possible yeah. can you give us some ideas that you're thinking about on that front i think there's there's sort of short term like 2019 some things we're going to try to do with with player tracking and ball tracking so one that we're really taking a hard look at is kicks out of ba- punts out of bounds, right? The punt goes deep, goes out of bounds. The referee runs down the field, <laughs> no, just... stops somewhere, 
And I totally think arbitrary. High ninety yeah. percent of the time. Now that we have the data to know yeah. where the ball went out of bounds, we can say with a good degree of confidence, over ninety percent of the time they're within a yard of where it went. I was going to ask you. Right? We're That's statisticians. We talk about really, margin of error. Really I was going to ask you. Ten percent. They're really really good. Uh, not and then so you, no, right but, but the money. It's a bell curve. It starts to spread out. And there yeah. are sometimes there's been occasions when it's been five, six, seven, eight yards away from yeah. where it went out of bounds. But you yeah. just said within a yard. I think if you asked most fans who yeah. don't know, they would have said, "There's no way ninety percent is within a yard." That's yeah, that's a great yeah, they're concept. Really, that's they're really, really good at it. So the question is, how do we use that data efficiently, so quickly and accurately to get them to make a correction and say, actually, you put the ball at 25, it actually should be at the 30. Right. And without delaying the game, are there will there be right. fan uh, motivation tracking? Like, for example, in baseball, we love to watch how fast they throw the pitch. Will we, yeah. see, will we see on screen immediately that pass was X miles per hour? I think that our, speed that, you know. I think our sense is that that day is coming. So, That's got to be. Yeah, right, that right. day is coming, particularly with the technology getting as quickly as it can, and you'll see that on, on Sunday again. With it getting as good and as fast as it can, we know that's going to come. I think, I think what we're saying is, like, how do we start to use that data to make the game better? So I think really like five, ten years, maybe not even that far, working with our partners like Microsoft and Intel is sort of the complete digitization of the field. And now you know That's everything. what I was going to ask you. You know every really? point from a video and from a data standpoint where every event happens. So the ball, did the ball go over the goal line? When did it go over the goal line relative to other body parts? Starting to figure that out with a high degree of accuracy and speed, mm-hmm. uh, I think is where we'll be in the next five years. What, is there any conversation around the style of play, or do you just guys kind of let things evolve as they evolve? So the play really has changed in the yeah, last couple of years. absolutely. So, And you can start to do that with data. So things like where are the cornerbacks lined up? I'm an old cornerback, right? How many of them are in press coverage versus off coverage? How often does that happen? You used to have to look at video to do that. We know that instantaneously now. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the ball being thrown? We have a map of every single pass thrown in 2017 and 2018. Mm-hmm. Where were the completions thrown? Where were the incompletions thrown? Mm-hmm. Where are our officials relative to those passes? Do we need to change mechanics in that area? So uh, I think there's a lot. We're just really starting to scratch the surface of it. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the hardest part of your job, Damani? What, do you, what, do, what, do you, what, do you, what would you most like help or insight or progress on um, geez, I think the high degree of certainty with which we have to do things that, particularly when it comes to technology, things can't work 95% of the time, right? That 5% is a win versus a loss. That 5% is someone losing their job, right? So things have to work with a high degree of certainty and accuracy um, before we roll something out. And that's, that's really a challenge. But marrying that with the high expectations of, this is a $13 billion league. You guys should be able to get everything done you know, <laughs> right. perfectly. So trying to manage those expectations with the reality of where we have mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. Have you tried manufacturing another Patrick Mahomes? Is that, <laughs> is that in the works at For, all? Fortunately, that happens pretty naturally. And that's the beautiful part about this game is that um, you get to see young players like that who bring energy and, in some cases, a different style of play to the game that's really, really refreshing. So mm-hmm. it's... Um, that that part is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. What's the popularity of football in high school relative to it was ten years ago and twenty yeah. years before that? So so we're o- over about a ten year period. I think we're off in the single digit percentages in terms of a decrease in high school football participation, um, which isn't good. But it's also you have to take that in context, right? With any data, you have to take it in context. What, what's happening across the entire sports landscape? You see a lot of sports specialization. You see a lot of people just not playing sports in general. Um, not unlike what's happening in the media industry. Everybody's fighting for viewers. Viewership is declining, so you've got to just try and get the biggest pie you can. 
uh, I think we're trying to do that with, with youth and high school football as well. Mm-hmm. Listen, Damani, we appreciate you taking the time out of a very busy week to be yeah, with us. absolutely. It's love, fun. Love hearing about the work that you're doing. We're big fans of the sport. Even Audie Weiner here. Oh, I'm out. I'm not. We've converted rock him. Rock and roll, yeah. We've Doing converted great. him in the last Do five it. years, and I now like he's, it. like, really digging you in. You know what it is? It's done it. It's the data. I'm just rolling in data. Right? And it's, it's just amazing. fun. Yeah. I waste a whole Sunday afternoon just plowing <laughs> through. There's a lot you can do with it. <laughs> All right, sir. Donnie, wish you the best this week. Have fun with it, and wish you best with the work Thank you, guys. Forward. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. That was Damani Leach, Senior Vice President of Football Strategy and Business Development at the National Football League. He's been in the job about four years looking at making the game of football better, looking at what's coming up in the next three to five years. He picked up that position after working in the NCAA for about 17 years. Damani Leach. Gentlemen, what would you make of that? Well, I love the idea of the, uh, I forget what he called it, not the censored field, but basically censored. Digitized. Being, digitized, digitized field, the digitized yeah. field. Well, I think that's a remarkable opportunity. Yeah. You know, in some sense. Well, why, say more about that. Well, because right now we see where everybody it's is. With the well, the tracking no, but what I mean by something like that is like when the ball goes out of bounds, I literally mean like a sensor just lights up. The ball goes here. So or, I should think of it like the tennis lines. Right. Yeah. But not just the tennis lines. That's optical. Like right now, let's be clear. The field... It's has not no digital. sensor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The players have things Their on pads, them. The, the field has nothing on it. So why can't the field have sensors and stuff on it? Have I call it? You know, well, then you don't, need light the, up. you don't need the tracking on the players. Well, except you might have many people within the same zone. It depends on the resolution yeah. of the that, data. What does that technology look like? Because how do you put something in there that's going to be stable to all the traffic? And activity. That's hardware, man. I don't do that. I guess maybe the artificial, <laughs> artificial turf. You couldn't do this on natural, presumably. Right? I would assume the answer is probably no. And know. but it, it could also be, by the way, that it doesn't have to be the field itself. It could be. I'll make it up. There's sensors all over every stadium now that can actually pinpoint. So it's not just the players that have sensors. Yeah. The stadium could have sensors. All of that could be done. But it's interesting how his focus on analytics and data is in improving the game. The game. Thinking about the referee and the player the player, and the whole overall experience. But I, as an analyst, and we, I mentioned and you mentioned my interest in baseball historically, one of the reasons why I got into in baseball and a lot of people in my cohort did is because of the availability of data. Mm-hmm. You'd buy a baseball card, the back of it was loaded with information, and you just tear the game apart, and you were able to observe we and calculate. We thought in the 70s that felt like it was loaded. It, it, it sure did. That Today, was loaded for the back. Nothing, baseball but, but football was useless. There was nothing you could say about a football player of any value. I mean, that we know today, and people even knew back Bobby, then it wasn't that valuable. We had football cards. There we had football cards. How many touchdowns you got, how many yards, and everyone knew that that was not anything you could attribute completely to the individual. That's not true. That, well, <laughs> I knew it. And, but it, was, it just wasn't as rich. And what I'm, I'm predicting is happening with this digitization, with the evolution of tracking, is we're going to have individual metrics, which we're just going to trade and talk about on a very simple, facile way that, that we didn't used to, and it's going to be fun. We'll talk about the, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what's Brady's top speed velocity off of a, of a of, uh, when he throws the football versus the other quarterbacks, and you can see it. I, I know that you know by my eye, I could see that Nick Foles doesn't didn't throw as hard as uh, Drew Brees and not yeah. as accurate, but you yeah. get a number on that. Yeah. The, the two things that um, Damani talked about that I was really excited about, number one, he's in a learning business, 
and a culture of experimentation. So I like the idea that he said, well, in some sense, we treated the entire 2018 uh, season as an experiment. He was laying the kickoffs. Let's measure a bunch of things, like do we get lower injuries and how does this affect various metrics, and let's track it. I thought that was one Mm -hmm. very, very exciting thing that he talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the second thing that he talked about that was pretty exciting to me was, in some sense, the use of data to improve the game on the field and how we think about what it means to improve the game and also kind of what it means for different levels of play of the game. I I thought that was really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. I just thought that I hadn't thought that the NFL would be thinking of, let's call it the policy implications and data is the way you're going to address whether those policies, what is the real impact of these policy changes? You have more data now than you used to. Yeah, the the job in general, let's just say, I mean, that guy's job is ridiculous. His job is to figure out how to make football better. Like, there's a guy with that job? That's that's incredible. I think it's an easier job is to think about keeping it as popular as it is without yeah, blowing it. That, that, well, I don't know about that. That's not easy. That's not that's easy, but that's a, really the goal. I'm not, I would, if I were in his position, I'd be thinking how to make it better, but how to just make like sure that you maintain the Risk the mitigation, status. basically. I mean, this is, I mean, people have been talking about the risk that is... But maybe this, you grow out of it. I mean, that's the, the, one of the Pat Mahomes effect is that it's just more fun to watch football than it used to be. And yet you're going to grow out of the problem, you know, if you have that kind of play on the field to some extent. At least that's possible. Right. Well, I think one of the things also that is interesting is that, and I'm not saying he avoided the question, Tabani was honest about all the questions, was better for who? And again, I go back to, you could imagine there being this tension between, in some sense, what does many of us like about the game of football? Well, first of all, people are running around fast. It's a violent sport. Violent. And so at some level, you know, I'll just use the technical term, there has to be an interior solution. We don't want it to be super violent. We don't want it to be completely nonviolent. Right. And so there's going to be some interior point that has the optimal amount of violence. And of well. course, if you ask, no, what's interesting is if you asked Eric Winston, our first guest, he might have a point that's a little bit farther to the left, less violent, yeah. maybe than the league wants. I don't know. I'm hypo- I, have, I don't know that. I'm just commenting that when he says make the game better, I yeah. think there could be a significant debate about what the better you know, game we is. Did, we, exactly. We didn't get into it, but the, the, the governance of that question is interesting. Like, what's the decision-making body on these issues? And I'm pretty sure it's a committee that... that the NFL and the but players that's the NFL. But I think the real danger for the NFL in the future, particularly with regard to violence and health, is at the high school level. And even lower. Well, that was a question you asked did, about but, popularity. But, of the but I want to hear level. about. I know it's down. And I, if you just listen, I, I mean, this is a uh, this is a stereotype. But no Jewish mother would let her son play football. I mean, and that was the stereotype of the age. Where there are few exceptions, but not many, mm-hmm. because it was just generally thought of that's not the game. That's a violent game, and mm-hmm. we stay away from that. And that sentiment has become more of a, a widespread sentiment. And the mm-hmm. question is, mm-hmm. it's certainly geographic. You won't you won't see that. I mean, you're from Texas. It's culturally different. It's culturally very country. different. But you can see that the places where football is as dominant in middle school. I mean, you have this um, the Pop Warner leagues that you get started off. Those are shrinking. Yeah, that's elementary school. That's elementary school. Yeah. And this is where the whole thing gets started. I mean, I think that the culture, the dominance of football is is in some level because it's a fun game to watch, and I'm willing to see that now more than ever. But when you're talking about putting your kids on the field, yeah. and I think that's where sports in general is, becomes popular, is because you play it. Yeah. Um, that's going to shrink. I think yeah. that's well, so let me, let me just push back a little bit on what Audie said and what's changed and relates exactly to what Damani talked about. So my kids never, matter of fact, uh, our, our high school that our kids go to is undefeated in football because it's never had a football team. So they have t-shirts that say we're undefeated forever. Um, but here's the thing. My, both my sons played soccer, which is actually a very physical sport, and lacrosse, which is also a very yeah. physical sport. Here's the thing that Damani talked about. 
everything is censored now. So we actually get, if my son, either of them, with the played, I have a younger son who's playing now, were to take a hit, we would actually get a note and a message about the degree of severity of that hit. And so that's monitored now in real time. In fact, at the high school my kids go you to... You like in a lacrosse pack practice. Absolutely. You either report at the end of practice. In practice, in games, they must wear a head sensor. Look, my sons play squash. It's not a very physical sport. But you have to wear a sensor for every practice now. They do. They wow. do. Even in they, squash. Even in squash. I guess they're, they don't do that They're all wearing headbands. Maybe that's the one, maybe that's the one they, sport they, where you can It's not a style. You know, we're wearing <laughs> headbands. We see the, we see the protective uh, garments on... Uh, football players as well in practices. Yeah. They wear these little sleeves over their helmets now. Let's talk a little bit about the game. We're going to have a yeah. little time at the end of the show, Wanna open lines. It? I mean, you know, not open lines, unfortunately, but open conversation. Um, let's take, let's squeeze a little bit in while we can. We talked on our regular show yesterday about the game. We've continued to mull things. We've got some more data. What's your latest thinking on how this game is shaping up? Well, let me guess. It was something we talked about on the plane coming here today, um, which is the value of one data point. So I've always made the prediction. You guys, will, I'm not, I will give, answer your question in just a second. I've always made the prediction. You let me watch one series from each team, and I will tweet on at W Moneyball who's going to win the game. Because I'm going to watch the game, like Eric Winston said, in the trenches, and I'm going to see who's dominating the trenches. So if you ask me right now, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the Rams, Professor Weiner's pick, can do (laughs) some damage here because of the force of the defensive line of the Rams. However, let me just say, (laughs) I will update after one data point, which is one series on each team. I will tweet my prediction at at W Moneyball. (laughs) It could be. I will tweet then. But if you ask me right now, the Rams are rising in the Bradlow prediction system. All right. Well, here's my my early early comments. I'm sure we'll have more time to think about it. One of the things as a statistician, I observe there's so much focus on individual little particular pieces of data that you can tease out. So, for example... The, it turns out the Patriots are, I think, 11-1 or 16-1 in the playoffs when they are playing against a team f- from whom they played in, they did not play in the regular season, and, they're, and they are 13-9 when they're playing in the playoffs against a team that they did. The argument there is that people this they is the play Patriots the, the Patriots. The Patriots play a team once. They are able to adjust in some way and do much better. This is exactly the kind of cherry-picked post hoc statistics that I believe is absolutely meaningless. So if you, but it's a giant discrepancy. So, 16 so and you, 1 you, versus 13 how, and now 9. How would you identify that? How, how, do you, how do you distinguish between what seems cherry-picked and post hoc versus legit? Like, how would you characterize? When, okay. Like, what characteristics does something like that have that make you suspicious? All right. So here's, well, first of all, I don't know enough about football to be suspicious on a contextual level. So if I knew more about the game, I would say, you know, bah, because of something I, I can know, know from context. So I don't do it that way. But so do, here's what I do. Basically, my view is you first start with the idea and then you go collect the data. Well, the only this is an it. idea a person, if they thought for fo- that knows football, that thought for five or ten minutes, they would say, That's right. I wonder. So this isn't like... So I the just- person who invented it, they should be more confident in it. But I see hundreds of these. So what am I supposed to do? Learn something sure. about football <laughs> yeah, right. and so come what do you up think? with hypotheses. So let me ask my, my colleagues here, what do you think about that data point? 16-1 and one against teams that they have not played during the season and 13-9 and nine versus teams that they have. Is it that way or the opposite? It's uh, that way. It's it's that, and, and they did wait, not play better, the Rams. They're it's better, better against, against teams, teams they've never seen in, in the season. It's surprising. because that well, The story would be, I think one story might be that, that um, Belichick has a bigger advantage from, 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 from without from cold, without having played. He's better, like generating advantages without actually having played the team on the field than the other average coach is. 
So that, that advantage goes away once you've had a rep. That's one theory. All right, so this is a theory in favor of the Patriots. So now let's take, let's take another theory. We'll throw this one out. turns out that, that Brady is a spectacular quarterback when he's edge-rushed. So when they're coming around, I guess so that's what this but means. Relative. Oh, relative. I mean, he's always a spectacular yeah. quarterback. But he's exceptionally good, particularly this past season when they're coming around. But when he's pressured interiorly, he's much more average. Mm-hmm. And guess which, which team is the best in the league at interior yeah. uh, pressure? Yeah. The Rams. There you go. That's yeah. a Rams data point. Well, let me ask How you a question. How you feeling about the is Patriots it, now? Well, let me ask you a question. <laughs> is the implications of this? I know it's not a full game. So why don't we just break it down a little bit more? Do the Rams have a better chance now in the second half or the— than the first half because you know what does it have to by, be a whole by game? The same logic. Why by does it have to be a whole logic. game? Right. By the same logic. That's right. We got another one. Another. We have time for another division. I've been like collecting these. Give us so, one more. One more. The Rams were exceptional in the first half of the season, and the second half they're much lower. And what do you think the Patriots have performed? Well, we know it's the opposite. Yeah. Now, you actually, I looked carefully. It, it, it seems like the opposite, but of the four best graded games by, uh, by my friend Ma- Ma- uh, Cade Massey and his, and his co-partner, uh, Rufus Peabody, they graded four games of the best of the season with the, with the Patriots. Which three of them are in which half of the season? Uh, you're going to say you the know first it. half. They're in the, the first, first half. half. So right. I think that the but real I, story yeah. is the Rams have decreased, but I think the Patriots have been good Now all you're cherry-picking. I'm totally cherry-picking. But their you're worst guilty. games were also in the first half, too. Well, let's come back to those data because I think they're really interesting, and those data have pushed me towards the Pats. I picked the Pats, but kind of barely. And when I look at the trend over time, like I look at good data over the course of the season, we'll, and we'll do that in more detail at the end of the show, I come out even more solidly on New England. Oh, I think it's the momentum. I know you do. Well, right? I mean, my, my story is that they were very, the, the Patriots were very volatile in the beginning. They had some great games and some horrible ones. And since in the second half, they've played almost all good games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Except for the well, one game against Miami. Bad against that. All right. So this is a special episode of Wharton Moneyball coming to you from Radio Row Live on a Thursday afternoon in advance of the Super Bowl. Thought we'd drop down here and do our show down here, do our thing, talk to some of the folks. It's a big open building with every production company imaginable doing shows from down here it's a lot of fun two days three days three days before the actual event we will be live again next week so we'll be back on our regular schedule but and we'll be watching the game this weekend we have another half to go on this show come back and join us after the break from atlanta georgia the home of super bowl 53 the game the events the celebrations this is a business radio special presentation of wharton moneyball on the sirius xm stage on radio row here are your hosts Cade massey Adi weiner and eric bradlow welcome back welcome back to a special edition of wharton moneyball a thursday edition in atlanta georgia edition a super bowl edition we're down here Cade massey eric bradlow Adi weiner we're down here on Radio Row, coming to you live in the midst of all the craziness down here. Fox Radio, CBS Sports, Twitter, Yahoo, everybody. SiriusXM has a big piece of real estate down here. Multiple shows being broadcast at the same time. A lot of fun in advance of a lot of fun. This weekend's going to be a good time. We're trying to soak it all up, trying to talk to folks who are floating around here about football and sports analytics. We have had in the first half of the show, Eric Winston from the NFLPA and Damani Leach from the NFL. Rolling into the second half now, we're delighted to welcome Bucky Brooks. Bucky, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Love having you, Bucky. Bucky is with the NFL Network, NFL Media, 
He's been there. Oh, Bucky, I just dropped it. How many years now? Ten Nine? years. Ten years. Ten years. Ten years. Ten years. About a decade. NFL media. That's after a playing career and a scouting career. I believe you're out of UNC down in yep, out of Hill. And he was drafted. Eric, I don't know if you know this. He was drafted by our boys, the Buffalo Bills, in 1994. Bucky, Eric, and I both have connections. I lived in Buffalo for a couple of years. Oh, okay. I w- you, you got there. If I have my years right, you got there right after right the four-year Super Bowl run. Yeah, right after the four-year Super Bowl run. But um, – Having played and having scouted, to see a team go four years in a row, you now have a greater appreciation. Like It's incredible. To, to just think about the wherewithal to go, lose, and go, and lose, and go, and lose, and go, and lose, right. but to continue to bounce back. Um, they'll never get the credit uh, they're just due for being a dominant team because they didn't ultimately win the Super right. Bowl. Right. But I don't think we'll ever see another team go four. Well, maybe. maybe well, maybe Patriots. next year. <laughs> maybe the Patriots will go four straight. But just to think about going four straight Super Bowls, that's a level of accomplishment that not many teams can uh, right. pull off. And, Bucky, I, I, when I saw that, I wondered, you might have some insight into, did they eventually, did it eventually wear them down? And after four years, what was it like to walk into that clubhouse after four years of disappointment in the big game? You know, I don't think it was necessarily the disappointment that wore them down, but if you think about football in general, the average lifespan of players or playing career is three and a half years. So that four-year period, they basically cycled out okay. a number of players. And so... You get old fairly A lot of Hall quickly. of Famers. Yeah, you get old fairly quickly in yeah. the league. And so when you look at the best players that they had, Andre Reid and Jim Kelly, Kent Hall. Thurman uh, Thomas. Thurman Thomas. Uh, Bruce Smith. All the other Bruce Smith. At some point, they were going to move out of their prime yeah, yeah, yeah. into the backside of the career. And I think ultimately that is what happened to the Buffalo Bills. Okay. Bucky, we want to hear about your work with the NFL medias, and we want to hear about scouting. A lot of, We really want to dig into scouting, but we got to hear a little bit about your playing career because you were a kick return specialist and to the casual fan that looks like insanity. They're almost, I don't know, which is more insane, punt return kick, punt return specialist or kick return specialist? Uh, you, you know, like, I, I specialize in kick return. Kick return, uh, to me, was just easier because it's easier to field and catch a kickoff as opposed to a punt. Uh, punt returners will tell you that it's easier to return punts because if you're able to get past the first wave, it ends up being a bigger game. In today's game, like kick, re- kick returners are really marginalized because people are always kicking in the end zone. People are electing mm-hmm. to take the touchbacks. It's not necessarily a big part of the game like the punt return is. So if you have a valuable punt returner, he is more valuable than what I see. a kick returner can you just uh, elaborate for me? I'm the, the football moron. That's the way they describe me. He's a, he's a um, baseball guy, Bucky. Uh, bear with him. Why, why is it so different? Why, why can't it be the same person? I mean, what, are the, what sets you can, of skills make it so different? You can, you can have the same set of skills, but I, w- I would equate um, when you're a punt returner, it is more like playing in the outfield uh, in baseball. And so if you Thank think you. about trying yeah. to field or catch a, a high fly ball, playing mm-hmm. center field and being able to track it, that is more like catching a punt. A kickoff is a little more linear. Um, you don't have to necessarily have great depth perception mm-hmm. to be able to catch a kickoff. Um, in terms of hands and those things, like kicks off, kickoffs are easier because the way they come down, you can kind of trap them against your chest. Punts, you have to have great hands. And so normally when we're scouting, we talk about multi-sport backgrounds. I typically wanted guys that played secondary and were return kicks that had a baseball background because uh-huh. I knew they could track balls in the air. Well, so, Bucky, this is a really a great point that you just brought up, which is I'll call it general athletic skills, especially for certain positions in the NFL. Could you, uh, you just talked a little bit about it. Could you elaborate on that? Like as you're thinking about drafting someone for skilled positions, 
how important is it that they played multiple sports in your mind? It's very, very important. Um, and I know we're kind of having a, a, a time when it comes to youth sports where guys are specializing. And what I would do is I would encourage younger players to play multiple sports because multiple sports allow you to develop different skills. So, for instance, for offense and defensive linemen, guys who have wrestling backgrounds are really, really intriguing. If you look at the Patriots, the Patriots have had offensive and defensive linemen that have been state champion wrestlers. They understand leverage. There's a level of strength and power. At wide receiver, basketball backgrounds are big. When you think about DeAndre Hopkins. DeAndre Hopkins was an accomplished basketball player. So when you see him make these contested catches with guys draped over him, it's very similar to making a rebound in basketball. Uh, Baseball players playing in the secondary, being able to track and judge balls. There is something to playing other sports that help you become really, really good at your Mm -hmm. skills in football. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because there's, I mean, in 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 the elementary schools in particular, it's this insane specialization they play 30 65 days one sport but the data analysts like guys like us who i haven't done this actually but i'm interested in it, have argued exactly the opposite that the best performance comes from people who play multiple sports yeah i, I mean absolutely and it's funny when i talk to baseball um, general managers scouts they're saying that they're looking for guys that come from multi-sport backgrounds because guys who have been playing baseball or one sport the entire time they have a tendency to be able to burn themselves out or kind of tap out what their development could be whereas a guy that has played other sports and hasn't fully dedicated himself to one sport there's still some potential some developmental potential for them we're talking to bucky brooks he's an analyst for nfl network and nfl.com he's also a former player before moving into pro personnel scouting for the seahawks and the panthers can you tell us about that transition from player to scout and then now from scout to media how did you do both of those steps well it was interesting because i always was fascinated by the team building process even as a kid i love um and always wondered how were championship teams constructed now i'm a carolina grad but i grew up watching carolina basketball so watching dean smith and the basketball team how did he put it all together and so i was always intrigued by that process so when i became a player and i was playing in the pros i made it known very very early in my career i would love to be on the other side oh is that right i would love to see um what it's like to kind of put it together and have success and because i played for a bunch of coaches that were either hall of fame coaches or super bowl winners i assume marv um, levy was marv levy mike holmgren uh marty schottenheimer tom coughlin i've heard of them yeah we've heard of them so those were the guys that had an impact and then ron wolf really impacted me because ron wolf hall of fame uh executive he was one who encouraged me to move from wide receiver to defensive back. And then watching how he put together the 96 Super Bowl team for the Green Bay Packers, it just led me to want to kind of dive full feet in into that, that pro personnel world. Got it. So did, it, I'm always kind of interested in why a guy decides to do pro personnel versus college. So I, I actually did college personnel. And I will say the differences between pro personnel and college personnel, pro personnel is a little more apples to apples i'm not projecting as much it is really more so how does this guy fit into what we're doing okay college you're projecting what a kid could be right and how he fits so your misses are more drastic in college because they're more variables to why someone would succeed whereas a good pro scout should be able to just look at a player and say hey this guy fits what we do Mm -hmm. we want to bring him in and here's what his value is Mm -hmm. so i've bucky i've always had the following view of let's call it the human scouting element the eyeball test as they say versus the data i've always tried to say like i've done some work for the eagles for a lot of years in scouting and other things and one of the things i always said is if the eyeball says something and the data says something different 
then that's the time to ask a question. Am I thinking about the data the wrong way? Like, it's not like one or the other, but, you know, if, you know, if you're about to draft someone and, you know, you're working for the Seahawks or the Panthers and you say, this guy's fantastic, and then, you know, whoever the GM is looks at their sheet and says, wow, the data doesn't suggest the same thing. That's the time in that quick interval to ask a question. How do you think about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It should be complementary. Like, you don't necessarily work against each other. Like, you can't just always rely strictly on the eyeball test and say, well, I see his, his, his size, I see his speed, I see those things. He should be a good player. At some point, you want to see production to back that up. And also when it comes to analytics and there's some baseline things when it comes to physical dimensions and characteristics that you would like guys to hit. Um, having not worked on it, but having learned a lot from Ron Wolf and his disciples, John Snyder and Scott McLuhan and some of those other guys, we were very, very big on a standard list of measurements that guys had to hit. For instance, we wanted cornerbacks that were 5'10 or taller. We wanted um, – offensive tackles who may be 6'4 or taller and had a certain wingspan or Mm -hmm. length because on average those were the guys that played in the league and so it doesn't mean that you can't have exceptions but what you're trying to do is you're trying to give yourself the best chance Mm -hmm. to get it right and a lot of times when you look at who has played in the league and how they perform those guys give you an Mm -hmm. opportunity to get Mm -hmm. it right how do you how has your evaluation of players changed over time you've been doing this now for you know inside the league and then with the nfl um for over 15 years so how have how have you evolved as a scout the league has changed a lot, and I think in the last couple of years we've seen the league change even more. I think Baker Mayfield going number one overall right. kind of signal a changing of the guard of the at the league level right. when it comes to standard dimensions. You were surprised, right? Play. I was I was surprised because we had never seen a guy of his stature go mm-hmm. at that. Now I know Michael Vick went, but the difference was Michael Vick was an A plus athlete. Mm-hmm. Michael Vick had remarkable physical traits that led you to believe like yeah i know he may be a little height deficient but this other stuff makes up for it Mm -hmm. baker mayfield was a good player we could even say he was a great player in college but he didn't have physical skills that necessarily wowed you okay so to see a guy who was an undersized quarterback by standard dimensions go number one strictly on what he did on the field Mm -hmm. that was uncommon Mm -hmm. but now he has opened the door for other teams to be daring and to take a guy who may not necessarily fit a standard, which bodes well for a Kyler Murray well, and some of the other guys. I was just come. saying, we're sitting here on Sirius XM, studio, Sirius XM here at the Super Bowl, and Kyler Murray is one of the guests. I was going to ask you, how do you think of Kyler Murray? Well, I, I mean, I think Kyler Murray absolutely has the talent to be a first-round pick. And I think if you look at his numbers. And multi-sport athlete. Multi-sport athlete. The fact that if you go back and you talk to people in Texas, how he performed in a, as a high schooler, some would tell you he may have been the best high school player to ever play in the state of Texas. Just real clear, he, he had three straight national champions in the biggest uh, division, the 6A division. Though. 6A division. So he may be the best player to ever play high school ball. And then when you look at the fact that he is a world-class player, he is a guy who is worthy of being a first-round pick in baseball, you see the speed, then you look at the numbers. Production-wise, they're very comparable to what Baker Mayfield. When you look at the eyeball test and you look at the film, you're like, he's a wild player. You have to think <laughs> that he is going. And the only reason you can kind of ding him is because he doesn't meet, he doesn't meet an acceptable standard when it comes right. to the height. But how much do you think of – let's even imagine I, – I do agree with you. But let's imagine I agree with you and I say he could be fantastic. 
But what about the length of his career? Do you start to think, you know what, because he's a smaller size player, he's not Ben Roethlisberger size, where he may be great for three years, but he just gets hit once or twice. He's well, not 6'5". Well, can, can I ask you real quickly, though? We don't, yeah. It doesn't have to be a hypothetical about Murray. No, no, we've no. Got, we've got Lamar Jackson kind of playing it out right now. He's not as big a guy, and he's taking a lot of hits. So, yeah, so how do you trade off in some sense? Well, his I'm, peak I'm, is really high, but his length may be really so, short, if so, you like. So, so here's... The thing, and I wonder what is going to happen with the league, and this is something that kind of falls in your guys' wheelhouse. Um, quarterbacks, once they, once they make a certain amount of money, it is hard to build the rest of the team. And so we've seen of late the Philadelphia Eagles, we're looking at the Rams, we're looking at some of these other teams. They're winning with quarterbacks on small deals. Will we ever get to a point where teams are beginning to cycle out the quarterback position where wow. we look at other positions wow. because – there are only a handful of real elite quarterbacks. So what if someone was on the forefront and said, we're going to treat quarterback like another position every five or six years. We're going to get a new we'll one. Turn it well, over, I know what you think of that, And Kate. we'll continue to keep mm-hmm. that, that number low so, so we can build up the rest of the so team. So I'm wondering, like, first, Kyler Murray, I have two questions about Kyler. I'm very interested in him because he has a, a baseball contract and mm-hmm. we don't know what he's going to actually do. So he's very, I mean, uh, for quarterbacks, he's absolutely on the short side. He's 5'9", 5'10". How many successful, just a baseline, this is the first thing we do with statisticians, as a baseline, how many 5'9 quarterbacks have had a successful careers in the not, NFL? Not, not many. I, mean, is it I, don't think, I, don't think we, I don't think we've had any. Yeah, I think do you consider you, Doug Flutie successful? You would have to point to Doug Flutie. Like, even if you go to Meh. the sub-six, yeah. it would be the Doug Flutie's, the Russell Wilson's, um, Drew Brees falls in at six in Michael Vick, but, but five but nine is not six. It's, it's an exception. It's, it's, it's an exception. How successful would Doug Flutie have been? Another Buffalo connection, by the way. If we Today. pulled him into twenty nineteen, oh, he'd, he'd be, be very successful. He'd be more successful, right? The, the game, the game plays to those strengths, and so the thing that we're having to do is we have to look at okay, this is the player. How are teams going to use the player? Before it was all about old school. Was this is my system? I need you to fit my system. New school is. Oh, this is what you do well. I'm gonna build what we do around what you do really, really well. Fantastic. Can you do that Fantastic. every five years? I mean, uh, well, is that I, something I, that's so practical. I, so I think, I think looking at the team that is without question the best team in the league, the New England Patriots. The New England Patriots have shown you that you can adapt and evolve. Let's just look at what Tom Brady has been able to do over 18 years. He came in as a game manager midway through the year. He became midway through his career. He became the playmaker, and now as he's closing his career. He is back to still being more the game manager. Great coaches are able to evolve and adapt. That's how you have to succeed. So, Bucket, you sure you're not a statistician like us? I'll tell you why. (laughs) What you said was really interesting because you said, look, there's only a few real elite quarterbacks. You can figure that out in five and six years. If it is, then spend the money. But if not, there's this whole, let's call it, indifferent set of quarterbacks where one's as good as another. Why not just keep cycling through until you find one? Are you sure you're not a statistician? I mean, I pay close attention to it because I have always wanted. There has not been a quarterback that has been a $20 million quarterback that has won a Super Bowl. Once they get paid, it changes the way that you have to build the rest of your team. So if someone's on the front end where either they cycle them out or they hold a hard line, this is what we allot to the quarterback, and you take it or we move on to the next one. No one has been bold enough to do that, but I think the sweet spot at quarterback is $18, 19000000 million. Tom Brady's right at 20. Mm-hmm. They've been able to be successful because they're able to manage all the other areas of the team. Mm-hmm. Will, uh, will the, if Kyler Murray does get drafted, will they be able to match a salary he pulled from the Oakland A's? Oh, and he'll make more money playing football right than, away. than baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right away. Lamar Jackson was guaranteed right around 7 to $8 million. So by going and he was to the bottom of the first bottom round. Bottom of the first round. So if Kyler Murray 
gambles and goes in the first round, right away he makes more money than he would make in baseball. And he's got to give back his bonus if he does that. He, so right right now, the only thing he is taking, he's taking a million dollars, and there's 3.1 left if he kind of comes in in March. He gives that money back, but he'll more than make that if he's a first-round pick. But Bucky, we approach player evaluation more analytically. I like to think that we're humble about it. I like to think we've learned by experience that our models are limited. You're not coming at it from that perspective. You're, 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 you've played. You evaluate these guys with much more expertise than we can. What would you tell the analytics community about how we can be better? Like, what are we missing? What are we getting wrong? How could we be more valuable to a person like you or to the guys, the traditional scouts in the team, with the teams? Man, it's really tough because I feel like there's been this line in the sand where you have the football players or the football guys and then what they call the stats guys or the yeah. geeks. Yeah. And I think <laughs> the teams that get it right will find a happy median exactly. where they can blend the data with the film. And the good evaluators are able to kind of lean on that. It can't necessarily be all one way or the other, yeah. but I think a good blend can help you. We always talk about cross-checking and being able to check off all the boxes where if there is something that stands out um, from an analytic standpoint – that gives you pause, well, that means we need to discuss it, we need to look at the tape, and then kind of figure out how to go about it when it comes to this player. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've worked, you've talked to a lot of quants and and stats and and geeks, and what would you say characterize those that you find most productive to talk to versus those that you don't have as much productive conversations with? Uh, I I think if you can take what the numbers say and back it up with a little... I don't know, like what I call film data or being able to kind of just show. Because I think we're visual. So so football guys are visual. So if you can show them where it comes, that's when you get them. Mm-hmm. One of the best things I like to look at, which would fall under the analytics crowd, would be the what we call the, the hit chart from quarterback. So when you see the charts where they target balls over the field, yep. that stuff is real because way back even in the late 90s, we were using those things to see where the people catch balls, where the quarterbacks like to throw, yep. and those things. Those things matter, and they make coaches and players mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. So, Bucky, I've always wanted to ask some of the scouts this question. Let's just, to, for simplicity, imagine there's three dimensions of quality of a football player. Would you rather have someone that's a 7-7-7 seven, seven, seven out of 10 on those three dimensions or someone that's a 5-5-10? Five, five, like, are we now in a league where you can be great at one thing and okay at others, or would you rather have someone that's just above average on all? I'd rather be great at one thing mm-hmm. and have a coaching staff that is able to adapt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing that I've the, what I've learned, I hate to keep bringing up the New England Patriots, but Bill Belichick, the reason the Patriots are able to succeed with guys that don't necessarily work other places, he only asked them to do what they do really well. And mm-hmm. the great coaches understand that if I always put my guy in a position to succeed, he won't fail. And so I would rather have a guy that is an A-plus talent in one area and use him as a specialist because the league is really a league full of specialists. The great coaches understand it, mm-hmm. and they're humble enough to choke down their system or tailor their mm-hmm. system to mm-hmm. give their best players the best opportunity to play to their strengths. Well, you're taking us back to the Pats, and, of course, they're playing the game Sunday. How will you take in the Super Bowl? How do you think you watch it any differently than the average fan, and do you have any rooting interest He's, in that? Are you allowed to have a rooting interest? No, He's predicting so I, the Pats. So I, so I actually will be working for Sky Sports in the U.K. Okay. And what we, I'm, I'm fascinated by a couple of different things. I'm fascinated by the fact that the Patriots have been able to evolve They've even evolved over the last four weeks. They went from being a team that was throwing around the yard to, hey, the Buffalo Bills game, week 16, we need to run the football. Everyone else is playing spread, 
three receivers, four receivers, the Patriots have turned back the clock and become more of a two-back traditional team. I told you, Bucky, and I agree. (laughs) This is what I've been saying. And what happens is all of these teams that built their defenses to stop the spread sets, they now can't stop old-school power football. Mm -hmm. The one thing that Bill Belichick has been able to recognize is when everyone is zigging, they zag, Mm -hmm. and that's what works for them. But he will meet a guy in Sean McVay who is outstanding at creating opportunities for his guys. Mm -hmm. What they do with the play-action passing game, Mm -hmm. faking the ball to the running backs and then throwing the ball down the field, they're terrific. They also keep six and seven men in for pass protection. So what that ensures is that their quarterback is always protected, he doesn't take sacks, and he's able to push the ball down the field. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing in the league, when you guys study all of the quarterbacks, you'll notice that when people throw deep, they're keeping six and seven in. When they throw short, they're releasing everybody out. Mm-hmm. That has been the new trend that's kind of evolved mm-hmm. in the league. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Listen, Bucky, we, we love to visit with you. Appreciate you taking time out of this busy week to be with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I loved it. Absolutely. Bucky Brooks, NFL Network Analyst, former NFL cornerback and kick returner. He was with the pro personnel departments at both Carolina and Seattle. Enjoyed the last visit with you, Bucky. That has been three quarters of our show here at Wharton Moneyball. Special edition coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to a special presentation of Wharton Moneyball. Live from Atlanta in the SiriusXM stage at the Super Bowl 53 Media Center. Here again, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome back. Welcome back to the fourth and final quarter of our special edition of Wharton Moneyball coming to you from Radio Row in Atlanta down here at the convention center right next to Mercedes-Benz Stadium a couple days, a few days, three days in advance of Super Bowl Kate Massey down here with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner we're missing Shane Jensen by the way we had Shane here two years ago Shane's our uh, fourth colleague, and he's out doing Shane things. He had to teach today, actually. He had to sit, he did. Had to he sit had this a, one out. a Ph.D. class, I think. He... And Eric's going to run back first thing tomorrow to do some teaching. So that's still going on. But we're here doing our show. We've been down here for about an hour and a half talking to a few guests. We've got about a half an hour to go. Coming up in this segment, we're delighted to have Alex Anthopoulos join us. Alex is the EVP and general manager of the Atlanta Braves. Local team, local baseball team here. They've done a few things. Alex has just wrapped up his first year after previously working with the Dodgers, and before that, he was maybe the youngest GM ever at 32 when he was in that role with the Toronto Blue Jays. But, Alex, we appreciate you stepping out of your normal day and joining us. Glad to be on. Thanks for, thanks for joining, Alex. Appreciate it. What's, what's the rhythm right now in the baseball world? We're, you know, football is all about Super Pitchers Bowl. and catchers are reporting in about two <laughs> weeks, I think. How has it yeah. been for you in the, last, in the last little stretch? Yeah, it's been, I mean, right now, like, guys have brought up. We have spring training in about two weeks, so um, still a lot of free agents out there, so still monitoring that market, still having conversations, and teams are still engaged in some trade dialogue. Um, and at the same time, before spring training, normally you get trying to work on some things in terms of um, staffing, infrastructure. We just had um, you know, some meetings with our amateur scouting department, because they're, they're basically... Um, have gotten started getting ready for the amateur draft in June, and we just wanted to get uh, get together as as a group. So, spent the day doing that. But um, really, at this point, it's a lot of tying up loose ends uh, more than anything else before we head off to spring training. Alex, how how much of the restructuring and putting into place what you want to put into place can you do in that first season, and how much do you still have to do when you roll out of that first season and you've got? 
you know, do you feel like it's in place or is that an ongoing process? How much of it are you still kind of, I'm still the new guy, still changing things up right now? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing process. I think one thing is you have to be careful. Uh, you don't want to make change for the sake of change. So, you know, there's a lot of really good things that are already in place. A lot of great work was done before I even got here. So um, I wasn't going to look to come in and make change just because, you know, I was in the position and I just got the job. So it was my job. I didn't think anyone needed to adjust to me. I needed to adjust to them. Um, and, you know, where I thought maybe we can add some things or tweak some things, great. But it was my, I viewed it as it was, I was just here to learn the organization, to learn everybody that was here. Uh, try to make some decisions on is everybody in the right role? Are they happy doing what they're doing? Um, and that was really it. So the bulk of the work was staffing, infrastructure, um, you know, m- making sure we had the right setup and so on. But you're not going to do it all in over. In, you're not going to do it all overnight, and it's a gradual thing. And the priority is always the big league team. Um, yep. But at the same time, you know, there's other departments that we're going to work on, and you're not right. going to really tweak them all in one one year but slowly but surely i think we're in a much better position as an organization today than we were when i first started alex i can imagine that you approach the general manager position a little differently this time than the first time out when you were you were such a young guy and it was your first time in the job can you give us an example of something you're going about differently this time because of your experience since then yeah there's no doubt um can't replicate experience um, and really can't replicate haven't had the opportunity to make some some mistakes so you know everyone's always said it's a cliche but that's the greatest learning tool that you can have so I think like anything you learn to delegate more um, you work in a much more intelligent manner you manage time a lot more uh, and I think I've just learned to be more more patient overall and you don't concern yourself as much with with the noise, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Outside factors and so on. Um, you know, you put pressure on yourself no matter what as a competitor. But I don't feel pressure from a media standpoint, fan base standpoint. Um, I think you just become very comfortable in your own skin and you do what you feel is right and you know is right. Um, and, and ultimately, it doesn't mean the decisions are always going to work out. But if you feel like your process is sound. And get get things for the right right reasons. I mean, put your head put your head on the pillow at night. So um, I don't know that there's one specific thing. I just would think that um, I've just become more patient overall, and I'm not as I, I'm not in, in the same rush. And I realize I have a better sense of the flow of the job and the pace of the job. Yep. So, Alex, this is Adi Weiner. I'm really, uh, you know, we're a, we're an all-sports show, and this is kind of the doldrums for baseball. We, you know, yet to start spring training, and we're in the height of Super Bowl um, kind of uh, frenzy here. But we usually like to think a little bit about free agent signings during the offseason, and this has been a slow one. And you guys are, you know, your surprise uh, leaders in the in the National League East. The Nationals were expected to win. They, they did not do well. That's, I want to ask you about free agents in general, why, why, they, why the superstars in particular haven't been signed and what your view is on that. But also think about your, your chief competitor in, in the National League. I'm not thinking about the Phillies. I'm thinking about the Nationals in the East. Is, is the Nationals, would they be better off not signing Harper? Or would, which would you like to see from your perspective? Them, Harper coming back to the Nationals or going to, say, the Phillies or, or outside of your division completely? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, as a general rule, some any great players, we'd rather not have them in the division. And those <laughs> players, guys like Bryce Harper and so on, they make teams better no matter which team they are. So 
Um, you know, it's hard to give a reason why certain guys haven't signed. Normally, elite free agents that are 26, and best players in the game, those are normally long, um, significant contracts that take some time to get done. So um, there's no doubt in my mind that every team in baseball would love to have those guys. At the same time, you know, based on past contracts and so on, those players will, you know, will most likely get pretty significant deals. So um, I don't think it's for lack of demand. I think it's obviously two parties being able to come together and everybody agreeing on the value. So it happened last offseason. Hugh Darvish got a big contract. That one took a little bit of time. Gene Carrietta got a big contract. That one got done in March. Um, sometimes these things just take time. But in terms of our division, I'd say all the teams, Look at the Matt Nationals are one. The Matt Philadelphia is going to continue to get better, and they've already made a lot of moves to get better. Um, you know, we think we're a better club, and we need improvement from our young players. But so the one thing, as many as much as people will have their have their projections and so on, we have no idea who's going to stay healthy. And you know, some guys will have down years if you wouldn't expect. And some players will emerge that no one expected as well. I mean, every playoff team seems to have a, a feel-good story that comes out of nowhere. So. Um, it's a long year. It's six months, but I think all four of us right now have a chance to win the division. So, Alex, this is Eric Brown. I wanted to ask you, uh, we've talked about this on our show, Wharton Moneyball, quite often. It's not necessarily that people don't think uh, Machado or Harper, etc., deserve whatever the number is per year. It's really the number of years. So how do you think of age curves um, when you're thinking about the Braves? Because this is one of the challenges that you know many teams face is that um, – Players want us to get signed until they're mid to late 30s. So how do you guys broadly think about age curves? I think it's a combination of things when you're looking at contract length. There's no doubt age is part of it. So um, you're looking at age curves and so on. So the other component, if you put age aside, the longer the deal, more things can happen. Irrespective of age, guys can get hurt. Uh, you just don't know. There's been, there's been a lot of examples of players. You know, they, they blow out a knee and something happens where... It's not an injury that, that enters their career, but it impacts their, their, their performance and their ability to play. So you know, the longer you commit to something like that, you know, to guarantee it, there's obviously more risk regardless of how young how young the player is. So no doubt, I think the number one factor everyone does take a look at is what years are you tying up the player, what years are you going to have. You look at body types and so on and performance, sedation curves and how other players... Um, have evolved and performed and put it all together. But when you're talking about really long contracts, no one has really the ability to really project what's going to happen down down mm-hmm. the road. But it's, in, it's a free market. It's competitive. And ultimately, if you get these deals done, you end up having significant dollars in that term. So, Alex, uh, one of the things that in my research we've studied is age curves. And, and I can tell you that historically the age peak age for a particular hitter might be around, even a pitcher might be around 30, but it seems anecdotally that in the last five years in particular, five, six years, too short to really get a full trajectory for these players, there's been a huge shift word uh, south. And so my question to you as a so you're saying yeah, the peak is now earlier. But no, I don't know when it's, if, it's, if it's yet. That's really my question. I don't, the data is uh, yet to really be deterministic. How do you feel as a GM? Do you think that the, the, the contemporary professional Major League Baseball player, his peak is now lower than it used to be? I, I think it's like you said, I think the data is still evolving. There's been certainly a lot of changes to the game. 
Um, I think from a positional standpoint, uh, it's impacted as well. Center fielders and so on, I mean, they may get to their peak in their late late 20s. And defense is a big part of it. Defense is a big part of the evaluation as well. And we're, we're trying to quantify the total worth of the player. It's not just what we think they'll do in the box or what they'll do on the mound. You know, what other aspects do they bring? So um, I think most teams would tell you they view it as late 20s. It's only 30. Um, you know, I wouldn't argue with you, but I, I, I would generally agree that I think most teams would tell you peaks are more in that 28, 29 range. Wow. So maybe down a year or two. But It's so interesting because it goes against all those advances in sports science where there were better longevity, better you know, injury prevention, all those kinds of things we think are happening through advanced sports science, but there are other forces apparently going the other direction. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean yeah. You know, I mean, I'm surprised to see this. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it on the field, I feel like. But I also think that you, you touched on the idea of defense, which is really the speed and agility deterministic. And I think for baseball players, you, you experience and, and strength would grow into your early 30s, and that compensated. But I think the, today's experts, and I think what you, what you recognize, is those less measurable, or at least historically less measurable, aspects are become more paramount. I mean, you can really measure how much, how much value a, a center fielder brings mm-hmm. and a shortstop brings, and I think that, that we see that, it's, that younger is better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to Alex Anthopoulos. You can, look at, yeah, you can look at reaction times, all kinds of things as players get, get older, and those are all things as you age. And playing 162 games, you know, very few players play every single game, but the grind of the season, the, the ability to, re- to be able to recover, uh, maintain your stamina, strength, and so on, that obviously plays into the performance and impacts it as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Alex Anthopoulos. He's the executive vice president and general manager for the Atlanta Braves, local Major League Baseball team, of course. He was with L.A. for a few years before, I mean, after GMing Toronto Blue Jays at the young age of 32. He's just finished his first season, kind of a surprising breakout season for the Braves in some sense. Uh, Alex, can you talk to us about analytics in baseball these days? We're, you know, we're mostly an analytics show. We all do analytics both in our research and in our consulting into professional sports. Baseball is generally characterized as being the most advanced. They were certainly the first to kind of dig deeply into it. What, where, what is the frontier for analytics in baseball right now? What are they pushing? What is hard? Where is the next margin that's going to deliver value for teams? Yeah, I don't. I mean, in fairness, I, I probably wouldn't want to get into um, specifics and I guess what my thought is or where I think things are going or where the competitive advantages there are but and I can tell you all 30 clubs are very competitive I think people are adding staff adding a lot of dollars there's so much data right now uh, the ability to synthesize that data the ability to make it actionable for the players is really important mm-hmm. um, you know there's examples you know every Every organization will tell you they have big R&D departments and analytics departments, but how are they synthesizing that data? Not everyone will position players the same way defensively. There's advantages mm-hmm. there. Not every team can maybe deliver it to the players to make it actionable and be able to apply it or have, have co-coaches and so on. Um, i say just speaking more in general terms, I think um, the, the, the current trend uh, right now is to really have things and information and data infiltrate into the mi- into the minor league the player development. I mean, it's really an extension of what's going on at the big league level, but I think more and more is being done at the minor league level, and I think it is changing uh, the coaches that are being hired, um, 
the things that teams are starting to focus on and so on. Um, but it is extremely competitive, and I think everyone's looking for every edge that they can get, whether it's international scouting, amateur scouting, player development, all areas. It's growing very fast. Alex, can you talk to us at all? Again, we don't want you to reveal anything that that Atlanta's doing uniquely, but but say motion tracking, for example. It's a it's a it's a technology that has, you know, it's you can imagine in, infinite relevance to basketball, hockey, and even football. It seems less relevant to baseball, but I'm guessing that you guys are finding ways to use this. In what, how big a role do you think motion tracking data will play in player evaluation and development going forward in baseball? I think it's playing it currently playing and it's going to continue to play a big a big role. There's a lot that you can do with it. Um, again, how teams decide to apply it, use it, and so on. You know, then it means to make those, those determinations. Um, but I, I certainly think it's being done um, and I think, I think it's going to continue to grow. So uh, there's a little bit of something. I've heard a couple of people talk about Acuna, your young player. What, how, what are you looking for him from him this year? Or, or flip it around. Was there anything that you think you did in particular to, to identify him? Um, or what traits led you to pull him up at such a young age? You know, he was a highly touted prospect. And when I joined the organization, everybody talked about him. When a chance to be a great and impactful player. He really uh, ran through the minor leagues in 2017, never stayed at a level for an extended period, uh, but continued to have some success. And you know, even when he started the season off in the minor leagues last year, he got off to a really slow start. Finally, when he got hot and started to get going over maybe a 10-day period, he was hit the ball hard, the quality of his at-bats were good, and he was in a good place, we saw, from a mental standpoint. Um, just from the, his play, Finally, we felt was locked in. That was the time to call him up. He's feeling good about himself, and then also coincided with us having a need at the big, big league level. So he came up, uh, did a fantastic job for us the entire year. Started out very strongly, then hit a little bit of a low, and made some changes to his swing, uh, which which ultimately uh, led to him to really flourish the last few months of the year. I would say going into 2019. You know, we're hopeful and optimistic that offensively he can continue to perform the way he did, make strides, and you know, hopefully maintain close to the level of play he had. I think the one area that he still has quite a bit of room to grow is, is defense in the outfield. Uh-huh. Primarily was a, he primarily was a center fielder his entire career in the minor leagues. We split him to left field a little bit in the, in the minors last year. And it was still some moments where just the nuances of the position, the familiarity of the, the position... That's something that he has the tools and the ability to be a fantastic left fielder. Um, he should be one of the best left fielders, but I think that's going to come in time and with work and rep- repetitions and so on. But that would be the one area that we'll talk to him about in spring training that we'd like for him to really uh, spend some time on. Well, it's fun for us to get a little lowdown on one of the most exciting young players in the league, and we'll watch his development with interest going forward. Listen, Alex, we know you're busy. We very much appreciate your taking your time out to, to join us on the show. We wish you the luck. Wish you luck getting the team off on a good start this year. Oh, oh, I want to tell you one thing. I I don't want to overpromise, but two years ago, the only other time we've done this show, we were in Houston, and we had on this show in the same segment Jeff Luno. 
So that bodes well if you believe the sample size of one projects into the future. <laughs> After that interview, you know, yeah. they went on to win the World Series. We're, right. we're just saying. We're just saying now. If that happens, I'll, I'll be glad to come on the following year, too. <laughs> <All right. laughs> we'll hold you to that. Very good. All right. Alex, Alex Anthopoulos, thanks for joining us. All right, guys. Um, General Manager from the Atlanta Braves there talking about what he's doing in the offseason. Anything jump out to you about that conversation? Well, one of the things that is interesting about baseball is there's so much insider information. And they're all so tight-lipped about what they do with no, their analytics. No. And there's a, there's a Twitter feed meme going around that if we go to another statistics meeting that, that involves baseball and someone from the team stands up and says, I can't reveal my data, uh, <laughs> we're just going to just throw you out. And there's just so much of that, which is in so contrast to the old days where all the work in baseball analytics came from publicly available data by non-professional people. I mean, Bill James got his start writing writing. Well, Otto, you're, you're whinging, but you understand. Right? I understand I mean, completely, these, but these, it's, it's frustrating for yeah, for the academics, we used to be the forefront of yeah. analytical um, contributions in baseball, and now we are clearly taking back go, because gotta, I don't have the, the, the data. you got to go work for the Braves. i got to go work for the Braves. <laughs> yes. All right, guys. We're down to just you know 10 minutes or so, and I want to dig a little more into the game. I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on the game. Talk a little football. Talk Rams and Pats. What else is there to say about this game? I'm curious to know how you guys have thought about it since we talked about it yesterday. We've prepared for today and has, have you changed any and i'm the only one of the four of us who went who went for the Rams. so maybe um have you guys moved a little bit is there anything well, you th- so look I, about? I i uh what i always wanted because this, this this the conversation over the last week among ourselves but also more broadly was about how the pats had started out slow and then really kind of turned it on mid-season and they were finishing strong and even in the in the show earlier in our conversation with bucky was talking about They've evolved late in the season, just within the last few games they're evolving. And then the story is exactly the opposite with the Rams, where you know people are giving stats on how Goff played in the first half of the year and how much of the stats don't look good comparing his second-half nope. performance against his first. And so what we do at Massey Peabody is we have the power rankings, of course, and we predict games, but we also evaluate each game using our same model. So it's basically saying, look, a lot of noise happens in a game. If we just looked at the parts of the game that predict future performance, how would we score the team? So we get these game grades. And so we finally track those down for the year and look at the trend in these two teams. And, of course, the first thing you notice, you look at this thing, and it's noisy as hell. You know, I mean, the, the teams bounce around. Not a lot of, of data course. points. There's a lot of variance. There's a lot of variance. And so you've got to accept that, and, you, and, and that may limit how strong an inference you want to draw from it. But if you dig into it, and you kind of eyeball these data, it's pretty clear. The one thing that's clear is that the broad trend is negative for the Rams. They're playing worse over time. Granted, it's noisy. It's not monotonic, nothing like that. And it's but, not even that huge. I no, mean, it's, they, they were exceptional you know, relative to the to the Patriots in the very beginning. I, I kind of disagree with you. If you draw a trend line through there, Audie, we're I mean, going to say there, let's just say that, that if you smooth those data, you're going to start out around plus 10 or so. That's 10 points expected win over the average team in the NFL, which is a very high number, and it's going to drift down by the end of the season. Right. They're in like one, two, three, three. You know, that, that's like almost a touchdown difference over the course of 16 weeks. D- well, they had decay. a ter- tremendous game in week 16 against Arizona. Yeah, well, there's, there's various. There These things also against around. Arizona. What I, would say, team. what I would say I've learned from both on-air and off-air of the two of you talking about this is I agree with Cade. The one thing I've seen is it's more clear from the data that the Rams have declined over the season. 
Now, Adi said something in the first half hour that's probably, now I'm evolving towards this. I don't know that the Patriots have gotten better. I know their variance has gotten lower. That's true. And I think what, because if you look at the, the Patriots the first half of the season, they had a bunch of good games and a bunch of awful games. But now, by the end of the season, they're just having all bunches of good games. Now, what's ended up happening as a result, the Patriots have overtaken the Rams. And so the Patriots are, I mean, their estimate, according to Massey Peabody, but I'm sure... They're still behind. I think you're two and a half points in favor of the Rams. No, but but we talked about that on the air yesterday. That's partially because of the amount of updating. Like, maybe it's too smooth. It's putting too much weight on the pass. but But his system doesn't... Which is, is that? Which for, is, enti- is based on the entirety of their data set, which is that's yours. Right. That's right. And that's he has right. he has weights, and his so, weights say what they say. Yeah, that's right. But now, now inevitably, I mean, we, we have to tune that thing for the average team. And so that's the right. question is whether there's something unusual about these two teams in either direction. But you get to do that every year, and you but and you and you've played with it, and you've decided against that. Uh, no, no, and this is it's, you don't decide against it. You can only we only have one parameter. You can't you, can, you can't only have so many degrees of freedom in football. But you still have to decide as if you're gonna, when you come to make the prediction. You say, do you believe in the model exclusively, or do you recognize the model's missing this one thing? It's a real thing in the world, and we're missing it. And therefore, we kind of have to kind of subjectively smudge the data over a little bit. Now, you, you've learned that you don't do that very often. You learn over yes. time that you usually make a mistake when you do that. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. That doesn't mean that we have it all pinned down because we know for a fact we let don't me, have it all pinned down. Let me ask something down. that we talk about on this show all the time. How certain are you? So if I asked each of you not to predict the winner of the game, but to predict what is your confidence interval about the score difference in the game? Like, for example, let's call plus the Patriots and let's call minus the Rams. How large an interval would you have to construct that you're 95% confident you've captured the score difference? Because what I'm hearing lots of things about is people want to use all kinds of stats. The Patriots have never played in a Super Bowl. Forget winning. Just played in a Super Bowl. The score difference has been more than seven. So is it if I gave you plus seven to minus seven, are you 95? Right, so that's, that's, you know what? Good, Hold on a second. Good, good I want to do this. It's a great thing. And, and I've yeah. learned a little bit that if I hear you and you hear me, we'll change. So I'm actually asking you <laughs> to write your number down. A 95%. A 95% prediction interval. And I want your plus or minus. So it's a number. Okay. And, but and we don't even care me. about, the, about your forecast. No, but, but Adi, you have to help me because I, you're, my, you're my statistical calculator. So remind me right, for the NFL, if we, if we knew for a fact that the if we knew for a fact, for a fact, that the true difference between these two teams was zero, right? Then what would the interval be? Just what we know from standard deviations and NFL scores. Ninety-five percent confidence interval. If we knew for a fact, okay. Now you're going to. So I can tell you that. Uh, that's why I'm asking. You. But remember, this is not. I can only tell you that fact on average for all teams. I hear you. And that that's is about thirteen. Thirteen. Thirteen for, points for, 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 so for ninety-five. For two, no, that's the standard teams. deviation. So that's for the one, difference. So for the difference. difference. That's the difference. And that's only one standard deviation. So that so, would get you 68% of the probability. So you need 26 points to get 95%? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. It seems crazy. But remember, 95% is all but one, all but one game in a season. 
Yeah. 95 is okay, Eric. Hugely, I'm, so, but, but let me do We're trying to answer Eric's question. We've already kind of blown One our own 20, minds with it. So we, the, for the starting place, I'm saying the starting place, just from facts, is that if you thought these teams, for, if you were knew equal, these teams were equal, right. you would say there's a, I need 26 point range to cover 95%. 95%. And then you get to Eric's question, which is we, how confident are you that they're relatively equal? And that's going to, that's going to stretch it out even more. So, so let's just put it into hard form. Basically, if the two teams are equal, one in 20 matches against them will result or, in a, in a game that's more than 26 points apart. Which right. is not so unusual. That's, that's what happens. Now, now it sounds about right. Yep. I mean, but to be fair, I mean, a 26-point di- di- outcome... One in 20 times ...between teams that are blowout. equal. I mean, consider the Clemson-Alabama college football game. Now, that's a, even a, that's a different sport with higher yep. variation. But that's an example of a team. Those teams were pretty equal, yep. and it was kind of a blowout. But how about, okay, so then the, didn't the Eagles play the Rams? And they got destroyed early in the season. They got destroyed by the Saints. Eagles played also. the Saints. The Saints they got destroyed, and they played it right to the to the wire at the mm-hmm. end. And, and some would say Char- Chargers got blown out by the Pats, right? Chargers in, got in, the, in the in the divisional so round. Final score equal. wasn't as much as the game was a blowout, but yes, okay. the Chargers got up to so, twenty four points at the end. Just so essentially, it'd be very hard to surprise me, but only because I'm an ignorant fool. Yeah. So <laughs> without the data, because without the data, I would have said if you give me fourteen and a half. That has a 95% chance. And you're saying it's way too narrow. Way too narrow. Way too narrow. And I think the general public. So what's interesting, of course, is the overs. The overs are are, one of the interesting oddities of mathematics is that the variability in the over is just about equal to the variability in the difference. Yeah, you told me that this week. And that's based on the, they're most, they're not completely, but they're closely independent. You mean the total score? Yes, the total. The total score, the variance in the total is almost the same as the variance in the, in the, uh, difference. In the difference. But the betting public, and the public doesn't realize that, they think there's much more variance in the over. Yeah, it, intuitively that's what you think. Absolutely you think that's That's that. right. So there must be an opportunity. There. I think there's opportunity. I think your buddy Rufus Peabody is probably, is probably in on that. <laughs> All right. So I'm gonna. I, I think you have to say, look, we're not sure these teams are equal. So I think your 95% confidence interval is, unless you think for some reason they're a higher scoring or lower scoring or higher variance, which we don't, I think, have reasons to believe. I, you got to ooch it up, and now it's going to be some absurd and, thing and, like 28 points. And so I'm yep. going to shrink that down because he's talking about the average team. Right. This is a Super Bowl. I don't think People it's are geared up. They're right. ready. I don't think it's true at the extremes. And so I'm going to I'm going to come up with a much lower interval, much closer in. I will say if you gave me let's even let's just say a 20 to 1 bet, okay? 20 to 1 odds bet, and you said to me, "Eric, I can take plus or minus, I'll even say 17." Which is, I mean, you're saying, oh, "Wow, yeah. that's a risky man." Yeah. I would take that. Bet. You would take okay, that let me bet. understand where you're coming I wouldn't. from. I would. You're saying that 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 standard deviation that standard deviation is a, for for all matchups That's where correct. a lot of times there's a great difference in ability. That is correct. Can I say what he's saying is he's willing to risk $100 to win 5 on that. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm okay. saying. I would but his answer is 17. But I like the logic. I like the logic that maybe among two of the best teams yeah, in the league, be that deviation is going to be smaller. But, you know, it, 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 um, it raises an interesting question about the history of the Super Bowl. For decades, Super Bowls were less competitive than expected. Yeah. They were a disappointing game. It was famously disappointing I to watch the actual game. Com- Hold on, hold on, but let me just finish the empirical observation. And then it flipped. About 20 years ago, it's flipped, where now we've had a stream of kind of as, as you would expect if two of the best teams in the league are playing each other. So I don't know what explained the problem in the first 30 years of the Super Bowl, but it, it has apparently changed. At least it seems to have changed. Well, in the last two minutes that we have, I'll give you my 15-second hypothesis. Maybe data and scouting has 
minimized that there's something that's the going to happen. Of blowout. Yeah, because teams are now so well scouted on each other that they can, back to what Bucky said, teams can actually adjust very quickly. I'm that's gonna, my theory. I'm going to take my 15 seconds and point out that I don't think anything new has happened. I think despite the fact that there's a big spread, that becomes that because that's because the tail probabilities are big, and that if you look at the normal curve, it is dense around the middle, mm-hmm. and it's much more likely that we have close close Super Bowls and we have blowouts. But blowouts just happen much more frequently than you think. I don't know. There's still, you look at the data. One in man, 20 blowouts should happen. One in 20. The well, last blowout blowouts, was, blowouts, was last blowout. There's been a blowout in the last in 10 the, years. The first 30 years it was absurd. It happened so often. It happened my, too often. My numbers have gone up. I'm Pats. I'm stronger on Pats. I'm going to go. I'm pushing you know three, four points on Pats now. I, w- I, would, I would give the points even though my data are the other direction. All right, all right. I'm staying with the Rams. Maybe I've, I'm taking the points. I'm, particularly if you're giving me four, I'm absolutely And, and my points. bet for all our listeners out there is I'm teasing the Rams and the over. So I'm going to take the Rams plus nine or eight and a half, and I'm going to take the plus over eight and 50. Half. I, I get to add six. I'll tell you how a tease works after the show. Oh, I see. Okay, well, I'm, doing, I'm sticking with the Rams with my three, four. I'd love your four, um, and I'm still taking with the under. All right, fellas. Well, that has been two hours, a very special edition of Wharton Moneyball down here live from Radio Row in Atlanta in advance of the Super Bowl. A lot of fun from Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Many thanks to our producer, Matty Dots, who's run this whole thing, and to our guests. Looking forward to the game on Sunday. We'll catch you again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.